Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our God, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, in the early church, the church would celebrate the lives of the martyrs on particular days, the days in which those martyrs had died, had witnessed to the faith. And so all throughout the calendar, they had these celebrations to the saints of the church, those martyrs that they could say they knew were in heaven. Well, over time, the church realized that there must be plenty of other saints out there. Not just those who were the martyrs, but others as well. And so a day was set aside on November 1st in order to celebrate all the rest of the saints. All of those who are in heaven. And there was also a day set aside the following day, on November 2nd, for All Souls Day. For those people who we weren't really sure where they were going, but we wanted to remember them anyway. I'm sure you probably have in mind who we could celebrate on November 1st and who we might want to celebrate on November 2nd. In uh, the liberal Protestant church, though, of course, uh, we don't celebrate All Souls Day necessarily, we focus on All Saints Day. We affirm that those who have died, those who have died, have their company with the saints. And so on this day, the Sunday closest to All Saints Day, is a time when we remember the saints, and particularly those saints who have died who are members of this congregation during the past year. And I invite you to call to mind, think about some of the memories you might have had of those individuals. Most recently, Sylvia Richards, who served the congregation faithfully for 20 years as Minister of Counseling and Community Life. She touched many of their lives. She was a great support to me personally. I always value her sharp mind, her passion for her work. She used to sit right there, where, about, where Mike is sitting right now. And I miss her. We think about Don Holloway, who passed away this past summer, who died this past summer. Don had suffered for 10 years with ALS, who faced that disease with courage and patience. I value Don for his sense of humor, his always inquisitive mind. I know many of you, especially in the choir, miss him and his love of music. You remember Sammy Shooty, who died? Sammy, who loved working with his hands, who loved slumber balls, who loved the members of this church, who raised his kids here very proudly. Helen Beckham, who passed away in January. I knew Helen not very well because Helen and two other members who died this past year suffered so badly from Alzheimer's. I had to suffer from that disease themselves, and their families had to feel the effects of it. And last November, we lost the last of our charter members of the church, Bill McKinney. I'm sure all of us remember Bill, those of us who were in the church at the time. Bill used to come every single Sunday loyally for more than 60 years to this church. I think he served on pretty much every boarding committee that existed at First Congregational. Always full of opinions. And always insightful. And someone who loved the people here and this place so dearly. But we also remember those who died who might not have been members of the church but close to us. 
And again, I think of my friend David, his father passed away, his touch here. I remember those times in camp growing up, seeing his dad around with his blue personality, you know, again, how happy he was at your wedding. Uh, I mean, those are fond memories that I hold, and I know that holds. My friend Ed, his wife's father passed away this past year. And I know each of you have people in your lives who died this past year, or people who died in your past that you keep holding with you, and you lift up their, and you lift up their memories. Well, this day, this All Saints Sunday is a day when we want to remember those people. I encourage you as a church to tell some of their stories, to think of the fun times that you had. It is right and good that we should mark that, especially here in church. It also gives us a chance on All Saints Day to think about some of the Christian promises about what happens afterwards. What happens in the afterlife. What is it actually like? Because <coughs> Christianity does have some things to say about it. And our passage for this morning, this passage from the Gospel of Luke, is one of the few times where Jesus himself talks about what the afterlife might be like. And for those of you who like the historical Jesus and all the historical Jesus kind of stuff, this passage to passage also shows up in Mark, and a passage shows up in Matthew as well. For those who are historical Jesus junkies, this is a passage that most likely goes back to the mouth of Jesus himself. So it's worth paying attention to. The setting is holy. Jesus on Sunday came into, the, came into Jerusalem during the Palm Sunday celebrations. He tossed the money changers out of the temple. And then during the early part of that week, he was questioned by people who didn't like him. First, he was questioned by those who said, how do you have the authority to do these healings? How do you have the authority to teach the way you do? Where does it come from? The passage just before the one that we read this morning talks about the paying of taxes. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And then you have this passage, where the Sadducees, they were the religious elite of the day, the traditionalists, they come to Jesus and they ask him about the resurrection. And they put forth this hypothetical story. Let's say you have a man who's married to a woman and the man dies without children. Well, according to Mosaic law, which most scholars think probably doesn't follow this aspect of it, probably doesn't follow too closely in the first century, but nevertheless, according to class, most classic interpretations of Mosaic law, when you have two people who are married and they die childless, if there is a brother who can then marry that same woman and carry on the line, he is expected to do so. So the Sadducee says, so that happens, but then the second brother dies childless. So then she marries the third brother, and the same thing happens, and then the fourth brother, and the same thing happens, the fifth brother, and the sixth brother, and the seventh brother, and then she dies. Now, of course, if I'm, if I'm like brother number five, this is going on. <laughs> but nevertheless, so there's this question, what, so who is she being married to? In the resurrection. That's a good question. He said he's sort of caught in the vine. A hot Jesus digger. And you can imagine uh, other versions of this hypothetical. In the, in the resurrection, what kind of body do you have? Do you look like you did just before you died? Or did you look like you did like when you were in your 20s? Do you, let's say, you have suffered from some illness or ailment uh, during your life? How and shaped your it shaped who you were. How were you like in the, in the resurrection of the dead? Let's say you were born with a deformity, or you 
and the resurrection, anything like that. You can come up with any number of ways of framing the same question. And so it's put to Jesus. And then Jesus gives this very curious response. Where he says, in this age, people marry and have kids. But in the age to come, there will be, no people will not be given marriage or taken in marriage. Because you all be like angels and children of God. Now chew on that one for a moment. I read through a bunch of commentaries trying to prepare for this sermon, and still I haven't found any really satisfactory answers of exactly what Jesus is meaning here. Some assumptions are that in the afterlife, since people are going, since there's no terminus to life, there's no need for procreation, therefore no need for marriage. But that doesn't actually quite answer the question that the Sadducees had. They become like angels and children of God. So some theorists saying, well, this is therefore a disembodied soul. Is that what it's like? Unclear. And then Jesus goes on to talk about citing the passage of the burning bush as evidence for the resurrection of the dead. Again, early, uh, in an early exodus when Moses is on uh, Mount Sinai and confronts the burning bush and God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, if they're all dead and they can't speak to God, how can God be the God of those three? They have to be living in some way to God. And then we have the line for today, because for to God, all of them are alive. The theologian Karl Barth, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, loved this uh, and preached on it. Karl Barth's view, his uh, brilliant mind, his view was that uh, God is beyond time. So God sees all time simultaneously. So indeed, for God, all are alive to God. What do you think about this? Does passage make things any clearer? When we look at the Bible, there are really three different versions of what happens when we die that emerge, three different models that emerge. There's not one unified vision. The first is the classic Jewish uh, vision, which is when you die, your soul goes to Sheol. It's places sort of darkness, nothingness. The psalmist talks about how when you're in Sheol, God can't hear you crying out to Sheol. So God, so again, the psalmist is sick. The psalmist is like, save me from being sick. I'm dead, I can't praise you, so you might as well save me now. So that's one version. A classic Jewish version, one that the Sadducees held. You die, your soul goes to Sheol, and that's pretty much it. Then there's a second version that emerges in the course of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. And that is this version of that this is version that no, no, God's righteousness has to be done at some point. And so what happens is there's going to be what eventually emerges as the idea of a general resurrection of the dead. At certain points, God will say, God will put all things right. He will transform, God will transform this world. And this world, the world that we're in right now, will become a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. We see this emerging in the prophet Isaiah, which is the first sentence that I read. Uh, the beginning of the service. You see it coming up in Zechariah. You see it coming up in a, a very apocalyptic form in Daniel. You see this repeated again, say, in Second, in second Peter, where in Second Peter, the end of Second Peter, there's this image of all the elements melting and a new heavens and a new earth are there where righteousness is at home. You see this at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21 where the new Jerusalem literally descends from heaven 
the new, the new heavens and the new, new that creates a new world here. The gentle resurrection of the dead. You see this hints of this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus is raised, some of the graves are opened and people are raised to the dead. It's sort of this odd passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. That's part of the gentle resurrection. That's what's supposed to happen. Your actual body becomes revivified, and this world is transformed, and righteousness is at home. But there's also hints of a, a different view. And you see some of it in the passage for today. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, here I'm testing all your Bible knowledge here. I know all congregations love the Bible, so this is, this is good for you. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. You recall that you've got Lazarus who's suffering and poor, and the rich man refuses to help him, and then they both die, and then the rich man finds himself in Hades in torment. And Lazarus finds himself with Abraham, enjoying things in some sort of blissful paradise. This clearly happens immediately after they die. This is not some long-term, long way to resurrection of the dead. This is something that happens immediately afterwards. And the rich man says, hey, let me go back so I can tell my family about this. So they're actually like nice people. And God says, sorry, it's too late. I can't do that. They should already know from the prophets. But there's this notion that immediately afterwards, there's a reward of punishment. You see at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on the cross with two thieves. And again, one of them is less kind. <laughs> uh, you know, proclaiming Jesus' innocence and saying that he deserves his crime. And Jesus says, truly, you know, you will be with me in paradise today. As in, after they die, maybe something happens. Now you see in the Gospel of John, Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many mansions. The assumption is that place will be there once you die. You look at 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul talking about the spiritual body of the resurrection. What it will look like is that that does not seem to be to fit into the classic conception of a new heavens and a new earth. What do you all think? You like those different images? The end. One. A lot of people in this society feel that way. The end until the general resurrection of the dead. Make sure you bury the consecrated ground and not involved. Um, or the third one, uh, you die and. There's some sort of immediate thing happening. Now, of course, over time, there are a lot of people who poke holes in various aspects of this. Understandably. The classic conception, the one of your body, your actual physical body, and then gets resurrected. You know, people saying, hey, come on, when you die, your body decomposes, it becomes a part of the world. That's, that might be part of the, some sort of elements of eternal renewal. But those exact elements are not going to be recomposed in some sort of general resurrection of the dead. That makes no sense. That means those elements will be shared among lots of different bodies. And so that's, you know, scientists dismiss that. And again, Karl Marx is saying that, you know, Christianity is the opiate of the masses for beliefs just like in the afterlife. A little bit before I brought talking about most people's conception of the afterlife, they, they said they just switch horses and keep on riding. He's like, why does that make sense? The famous atheist philosopher of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, uh, had a, you know, pointed out very logically, he's like, listen, we know that if you have severe brain damage, your memories go away. We know that if you have severe brain damage, your personality changes. That's tied up in the cells of your brain. Therefore, if you die and your brain decomposes, it's pretty obvious that all that sense of your memories and everything else decomposes too. Hmm, Bertrand Russell. 
But then again, there are, other, there are also minority reports out there. This past week, I read this book, maybe you read it too, uh, by Evan Alexander called Proof of Heaven. Sort of an interesting book. If you're curious, it's worth reading. Uh, this is written by someone, and again, I don't know this. He, he writes about his medical background. I'm not, I have to take his medical background at face value. But he's a neurosurgeon, well-trained neurosurgeon. Uh, was on the teaching faculty at Harvard when he was serving as a surgeon up in Boston. And he has, uh, he ends up developing a case of bacterial meningitis, a very severe case of bacterial meningitis, and finds himself in a coma in a hospital. According to Alexander, while he was in his coma, uh, his cerebral cortex, the part of the brain that would be functioning about memories and imagination and things like that, all is, is so overwhelmed by the bacteria that it's functionally not working. So he has no brain function for all intents and purposes. And yet he has this incredible experience that he relates to the book. He described being initially in some sort of uh, murky, dark mix where he feels disembodied. He doesn't really feel as though he has any memories or any capacity for voice, but he's still very much present. And there's this banging sound in the background that he describes. Then he described at some point uh, being more and more aware of the surroundings. And then having some sort of, and again, he, he uses language as best as possible to describe this, some sort of uh, silver, gold, glimmery type thing coming down and actually lifting, up, lifting himself out of the muck. And then he goes to some idyllic environment where he sees things at peace, things with such beauty, things with such radiant color, and he's just overwhelmed by how great it is. And the message that gets repeated to him is, you are loved and cherished. You have nothing to fear. You have done nothing wrong. And then he continues to ascend, and he finds himself in the midst of a dark orb. And the dark orb is uh, sort of a source of light, which he describes as being like God. And here's this uh, sound that he relates to the uh, sound ohm. And again, is totally overwhelmed in a sense of love and wrapped in a loving presence. Alexander then miraculously wakes up from his coma and finds his life changed. He says, I felt the love of God, that's the way that he interpreted it. And he said, he affirms that. He's like, that changed his life. He wasn't a particularly religious person before, but he became a lot more religious afterwards. What do we make of Alexander's experience? Who knows? It's one person's experience. But he does argue that, that such a thing as consciousness is possible. A disembodied consciousness is possible. Subatomic particles, physics, the world is much more uh, in flux on a subatomic level than it seems in the world in which we live. Perhaps there is space for a disembodied consciousness. Perhaps there's stuff there that we have a hard time finding. Maybe there's more information that we, that we have out there. There are plenty of theorists and scientists to talk about this. I don't know. But it's worth considering. What I do know is that the Christian tradition is unequivocal. The Christian tradition has proclaimed from the very beginning that there is something out there. They proclaim that because God exists. A loving presence of the world exists. An eternal loving presence of the world exists. One that we feel connected to and is a source of love. And that that is the basis for a proclamation that things persist afterwards. Christians look at the model of Jesus of Nazareth, whom his disciples felt as being alive again not in a way that we're alive, but in a very real way, after he was dead. And they kept passing that on. 
For Christians, the proclamation of a life hereafter is something that should give us peace and give us hope, and also courage to face the world, even with all the difficulties that arise in the midst of it. Even in the midst of great illness, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of the potential end of our life, that we can still live each moment in hope that the end of our earthly life isn't going to be the end entirely. We don't know what it will look like, but Christians proclaim unequivocally that that is the case. But it is a leap of faith. And it's one that you all have to take on your own. But as you think of that, again, especially on this Sunday, let us remember the dead, those who have passed on, and lift them in memory. My favorite poem about this subject is Jane Chang's Notes from the Other Side, which I'd like to read to you now. Notes from the Other Side. I divested myself of despair and fear when I came here. Now there is no more catching one's own eye in the mirror. There are no bad books, no plastic, no insurance premiums, and of course, no illness. Contrition does not exist, nor gnashing of teeth. No one howls as the first clod of earth hits the casket. The poor we no longer have with us. Our calm hearts strike only the hour. And God, as promised, proves to be mercy clothed in life. May it be so. Mm-hmm.